You're listening to From Up, the Fermented Food Podcast, where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. I'm your host, Brandon, here with my co-host, Tara, from Fermentation on Wheels. Have you been doing any uh, wheeling and dealing this past week? <laughs> I've I've done a bit of wheeling and dealing. I actually had some visitors to my bus um, this past Saturday. Uh, some visitors, I, I mentioned the, the fermenters I met from Iggy's Raw Culture, uh, they were at the farmer's market nearby my sister's house where I've been staying. So they came by and uh, I gave them some water kefir cultures and sourdough and a jun culture as well. So that was really fun. They're really great. And uh, yeah, and I had a very pleasant note on my bus from the city saying, might be nice if uh, you moved in the next three, four days and so I, I went ahead and packed up and moved my bus, and I'm back in my bus full-time, which is really great. I've been kind of staying at my sister's for a few weeks. So, yeah, I'm kind of just transitioning back to that, getting ready for some events coming up, uh, fermenting a lot in my bus. It feels good to be revving up again. So this, this note that you got from the city, that's nice that they gave you like three or four days. I mean, for anyone that doesn't, isn't familiar, or hasn't seen images of your bus or especially images of your bus in perspective. Um, it's, it's a big bus. So it's really big. Yeah. Where were you squeezed <laughs> into that you were getting this notice from? Well, like right in front of my sister's house practically, which is a pretty narrow street in Seattle. And, um, it's in the Greenwood neighborhood. And now I'm just down the street at a park. Uh, not, you know, it's half a mile maybe. And it's just a wider road, the, like the widest road in the neighborhood. So yeah, I mean, my bus is really large and that makes it really difficult in urban areas. And the cool thing about the West coast is, um, I've always gotten notices that are like, Hey, you might want to like move along now. It's kind of like, you know, your, your bus has been sitting here a while. It's kind of like big and in the way of things and, um, you know, other parts of the country, I would usually just get a ticket. I've actually only gotten two tickets in the past two years and they were kind of like my mistakes, but I'm a lot more, uh, aware of parking in one place for longer than say like three to four days when I'm not in the West coast, because I know that I know there are kind of harsher laws. So. Get your stinking bus out of here. Yeah. But I mean, that's the beauty of like I'm farming often. Right. So I'm not in urban areas too much unless I'm actually teaching, you know, I prefer, I prefer keeping it rural when I can, but my, my family is pretty city oriented. So if I'm visiting them, that's the way it is. I can't imagine driving that bus in a city anyway, because I don't really like driving big vehicles in general and that's uh, humongous. And so I have no experience driving something that large anyway, but I can't even imagine doing anything besides uh, rural roads. Well, the learning curve is incredible. I can tell you that because I would have never, I, I never imagined I'd be able to drive my bus in New York City or any of the big cities I've been through. And, you know, I've done it all now. And like, wow, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've really prepared myself through just the hours and hours I've put in and driving that bus. So I think two years <laughs> gives you the, the street cred. Yeah. So. 
So we had some follow-up from, from last week in regard to, uh, if you remember our discussion on exploding bottles, the danger mm, of fermenting yeah. bottles. Um, and this, this one was kind of an anecdote, not necessarily of breaking glass, but something else to remember is that sometimes it's just going to be so effervescent and so pressurized inside that the the contents will shoot out when opening up the bottle, even if just opening it a crack like this person. She said it was her first experience with making kombucha and she was on her first batch and she was putting it into a Grawl style bottle like we're talking about that can occasionally explode um, and then putting strawberries and blueberries in there, a uh, fresh puree of it. And then she was uh, getting home on the second day from work and she wanted to burp it to release some of the pressure so it wouldn't build up too much, only to have the contents, uh, and I quote, shoot out of the bottle like one of those Mentos and Coke volcano rockets. <laughs> so that is a, a nice visual and it's definitely something that can happen. And it's uh, so it's not always exploding glass, but it can be exploding product flying everywhere and making a huge mess. And I can only imagine that that was uh, messy. Uh, and but it's uh, something where she, she was really wanted to get an understanding better of, is there a better way to ensure carbonation, but help the mixture to off gas more effectively? Do you have any initial thoughts about this? Well, so, um, you know, in regards to actually how much CO2 buildup you've got going on, like carbonation wise, I, I still think that's like a matter of getting to know your culture and just the timing of it. But um, this reminds me of, uh, my friend Ken in New York City, who would attend every uh, NYC ferments meetup group, which which meets every month in Manhattan, and uh, he always brought these bottles of water kefir, and there was always the warning that like these are gonna just like blow everywhere. So he always had a system, and his system was having a big bowl, and then putting the putting the uh, the bottle in the bowl and then having a Ziploc bag that he would put on top of it and then open the bottle with the Ziploc bag covering the bottle and then the bowl underneath so that nothing would, would flow up and then, you know, well, it would flow up within the bag and then back into the bowl and that way all of it would be saved. Um, and that was his method when he wasn't sure whether it was too carbonated or not, because he was making a lot of water kefir. Uh, it was hard to keep tabs on what was like over carbonated and what was not. So um, I really recommend that that method if you're like you know, making a lot of a lot of super carbonated beverages. Or in this case, if it's your first time and you're not quite or sure if it's, it's going to be like, and you have no idea how carbonated it's going to be, and you're worried it's going to low. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And and one of the things I would recommend in this in this instance is learn from the experience that you had, whatever time of year it was, assuming that maybe it was recently and it was in the summertime months, uh when it's it's this kind of temperature and you're adding a fresh puree and giving it a day or so, then you know it's probably carbonated plenty as as you're wanting that carbonation. Don't open it. Just put it in the refrigerator because that's actually going to help with the carbonation because uh, the 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 CO2 will absorb more into the liquid when it's cold. And so putting it in the refrigerator may really help a lot with that. Um, just a one day ferment, if it's already vigorous uh, carbonation in it, you may find a drastic difference in the way it opens if you give it a day to fully chill in the refrigerator, absorb some of that CO2 into the liquid more so, and then um, take it out and try and open it while it's still 
cold. Um, and then you, you might have something that works better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing she was kind of asking was in regard to like, could you create a mini version of an airlock for it? And yes, you could put an airlock on it and you don't even necessarily need, uh, if you're not familiar with uh, the kind of airlocks that are out there, I mean, you can just get one, even for a girl style bottle, you can get a little rubber, um, bung. What is it? It's a, it's B-U-N-G, bung. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you can put that Those right on little there. rubber pieces that yeah. you see airlocks in yeah Yeah. they have a funny name so i always remember it but um and i've never heard it so i will definitely never forget (laughs) it now um and so yeah so you put that on top and then it has a a hole in the center that you can put a little plastic airlock or glass airlock or however you want to um put different kinds of airlocks that can fit right on top and then uh, you would have that but then you're not going to get your carbonation because you need to seal it in order to get the carbonation so it it really depends if you want to get more of that um, uh, fermentation going with those fresh strawberries and blueberries and then cap it after it's had a day with the airlock on, um, then that'd be one way to, to go about it. But you kind of have one or the other. Yeah, this is right. And also, uh, an alternative, if you have airlocks, but you can't go to the homebrew shop to buy an actual bung, you can take a cork Um, I used to do this. I would just drill a hole in the cork and then I'd put the airlock in the, in the actual cork. So, you know, you can get pretty scrappy with these things too, but, but ultimately, yeah, you will not get carbonation if you have the airlock. So if that's what you're going for, then yeah, you'll have to, you'll have to plug it. Yeah, plug it up and then uh, like you recommended last week regarding uh, water kefir and whatnot to uh, let it ferment for a very short period of time and then put it in the refrigerator to let it ferment very slowly. So mm-hmm. then you can get that carbonation without uh, the danger of explosions. And so it would work the same way, the danger of um, a pressurized uh, volcano exploding. Um, so definitely uh, keep those in mind and, and experiment and and follow up and let us know uh, what you do find that works. Uh, or if anyone else has anything else that works better, let us know. Um, and then our, uh, you know, our official listener question of, of this week is um, someone that is uh, living currently in Australia and has sourdough starter that they want to bring back to the United States because they're going to be moving back to the U.S. very soon. And uh, she was wondering if there was uh, what was the best way to achieve this, bringing the sourdough across borders, knowing that liquids aren't allowed in carry on luggage um, and was wondering about drying some of the starter as one option. Um, and that's definitely a very valid option. As far as I understand, you have some experience with drying of sourdough? Yeah, it's a really simple process, actually. You can take a, a tray and put some, say, wax paper down on the tray, pour your sourdough out on a thin layer on the tray and let it dry overnight. Um you can use a dehydrator if you want to speed up the process or just, you know, put it in the oven with the light bulb on and it will, it will dry pretty quickly in 12 to 24 hours. If you have it in a very thin layer, I mean, the thinner the layer, the faster it will dry. And then you can simply uh, chip the sourdough and you'll have little sourdough pieces and you can put those in a jar and you can travel with them. So, in, and how long will those generally last? Like how, when can you reconstitute them and they'll still be viable? I mean, they will be viable for, I mean, they could be viable for up to years. It really depends on the starter's resiliency too. Um, the best idea 
is to store it in the refrigerator if you're not planning on bringing it back to hydration. So, you know, if, if you're just using this as a method for like getting them from one place to another, um, hopefully you'll be hydrating them soon and, you know, working with the sourdough uh, immediately after you've, you've not landed, but gotten to your new home space, but um, otherwise, you know, store it in a cool place. And, um, I mean, really that's, that's, you know, that's the most important part is keeping it in a cool, dry place. Um, if it's really humid and hot, then it could get moldy. That's just the nature of, of these things. There's more opportunity for growth of stuff when you have these kinds of temperatures and that environment. So, yeah. So the quicker you can get it back, the the better, unless again, it is in, in, um, you know, refrigerated or I guess even freezer temperatures, as long as you can keep um, moisture out of it. Um, but uh, it, it also can work well for like a, a backup. If you want a backup of something and for whatever reason, at certain times of the year, your, your sourdough starter or other culture don't do so well. Uh, drying can be a great way to preserve it uh, just so you have as a backup. I, I mean, I also do freezing. Um, so my experience is more with say, yogurt starter cultures and uh, freezing them uh, works. It's not always perfect. It won't, they won't always come back. Drying also works. So doing a very similar thing with, with yogurt cultures and putting them out on, um, you know, wax paper or parchment paper and then um, dehydrating them or just letting them dry. Um, so uh, the, the dehydrator works better because then it doesn't, um, since a lot of my cultures are mesophilic cultures, they're going to continue to ferment if I'm just doing at uh, a room temperature. So a little bit of um, extra speeding up and uh, of that fan blowing and de dehydrator can really, really help. But then they'll, they'll come back to life. And part of like uh, Vili, when it first came to the United States, people were using in the early 1900s when people were coming over by, by, by ship, they were drying Vili on handkerchiefs and then putting it back into milk to make the Vili. Uh, what was that process? How did they dry on the handkerchief? Did they just lay out the handkerchief and put a thin layer on? Or I've just like dipped it. Uh, I've just submerged uh, a just a cloth, not an actual handkerchief, but like a, a just some some cotton cloth into a um, yogurt culture, and then I just let it dry or put it in the dehydrator or whatnot, and mm -hmm. then um, then it's like the sheet of driedness. I don't know exactly what people were really doing back in the day, except that that's the way that people were bringing it over because you're talking about a ship um, travel without access to fresh milk. Like it's usually fed every single day traditionally yeah. in, in Finland. So then you, you bring this over 30 plus days sometimes before they're going to get to anywhere where they can reconstitute it and, and uh, make it uh, again. So it has to stay viable. And so handkerchiefs were the way to do it. Um, so yeah, there are definitely ways that people have throughout history taken things across borders or traveled far with them. The one thing I would say in regard to the specific question about liquids and carry on luggage, I take yogurt cultures on airplanes in, um, little travel size lotion bottles. So under three ounce or the three ounce or under plastic lotion bottles work great, especially for yogurt cultures because lotion is generally white. So there's actually no question about what's in there, but it works for anything. I mean, sourdoughs like between a, a, a liquid and a gel. And so just put it in into those and you'll have plenty at three ounces of that. You'll have plenty to, to work with. And so if you want, you know, different cultures, you could do multiples, or if you just want more extra sourdough, put a few of those in there. You can actually fit quite a few in a quart size 
uh, bag, the limit for traveling with. So that's, that's how I recommend traveling, especially if you're going to travel internationally and, um, you're worried about something, getting some food, something to get confiscated, depending on which customs, um, you're going through. That's one way to get through. Great advice. Yeah. So there, there are ways to, to make it happen. So definitely don't give up on your sourdough. You can, you, you can, you can definitely get that across the border. Um, Yeah. We need more of those like heirloom old school, you know, French English. We got to mix it up over here in the U S. So, so bring it on. If, if you're traveling overseas and you find some really great hundred year old cultures, yeah, definitely bring them home. (laughs) Yes. You could, you know, um, do your part listener for the fermentation community and become a fermentation culture mule. I mean, just bring these things across and like share them with other people and get other people to, um, to do it. I mean, people have been doing it with, uh, drugs for so long. I mean, why does we'll do it with something a little bit more positive? <laughs> exactly. That was, that was my thought. Exactly. Yeah. So in, in other uh, international kind of uh, thought uh, realm, uh, there was actually this, this article that I ran into uh, actually more in your neck of the woods, uh, Eugene, Oregon, the, the register guard is a mm-hmm. paper there. And, and it's talking about the, uh, the proliferation of Korean food in the United States, but how it's different than uh, other like Japanese, Chinese, Thai, and Vietnamese, where there's a proliferation of restaurants with those cuisines, uh, Asian cuisines with Korean there, there isn't really that proliferation of a Korean restaurant. Sure. There are some, but it's not to the same extent. Um, and, but the thing that we have been introduced to are the fermented condiments of Korean cuisine. Um, and that's the, the article's kind of arguing that Korean cuisine is, is compl- complex and ritualistic, but the ingredients aren't. So we are, it's, it's very easy for the American palate to, except the ingredients, but not necessarily the full dishes. Um, and so that's why we get things like, um, uh, Korean tacos much faster than we get like a, a traditional, uh, kimchi stew. Um, I really kind of, um, like that concept, not only for the Korean aspect of things, but, uh, and, but more so just for fermented condiments and, and fermented foods in general really do have this way to cross, uh, cuisines and, and cross, um, uh, palates because I think a lot because there's the, those umami flavors and different things that are, um, that are going on in fermented foods and, and the saltiness and different aspects of it. And just condiment being an enhancer to other food sources, we can enhance, um, something with an exotic, um, condiment much easier than we can necessarily accept a exotic, um, full meal of, of, of a different food source that maybe we're not acquired a taste for. Um, and so I kind of like the idea of not only Korean foods, but fermented foods in general, fermented condiments being a, a way to link people to different foods and maybe get them more interested in different cuisines that they may not otherwise um, have been familiar with. Yeah, and I I feel like Korean food is quite condiment oriented. Like there are a lot of lovely condiments, both fermented and non-fermented in Korean cuisine. And also Korean cuisine is quite meat centric. So I know that, you know, some part of the population is going to like have their, the parts of Korean cuisine they really love. Like I grew up vegetarian, so I wasn't really, I never, I was never really able to eat at Korean restaurants because I know a lot of the Korean restaurants in the U S are like Korean barbecue. And then you have like your beautiful little side dishes with different types of kimchi that were always, you know, fantastic. But that was kind of, 
or we could eat all I could eat. So I'm really glad to see the kind of like fusion that's popping up where these Korean condiments are mixed with like American cuisine. Like there's a spot in Seattle I walked by the other day called Diggity Dog and they have like their kimchi hot dog and, you know, all of that. I mean, of course, kimchi is super hot right now. So you see it everywhere and a lot of a lot of uh, more contemporary American restaurants, which is a beautiful thing. Yeah, it really gets people um, interested in these these foods that they may not otherwise consider. I mean, because mm-hmm. surprisingly, as it may seem on a fermentation podcast, I'm, you know, I'm kind of biased uh, that like kimchi is just something that I feel like, you know, everyone should at least experience and, and try. Um, and that many people listening to this podcast probably have if they haven't made it themselves. But in general, there are a lot of people that still haven't. Um, and people that maybe have that um, maybe tried it and had not so great of an experience. I've talked to many people that were like, yeah, I tried kimchi once and didn't really like it. But now that we have a lot of um, people incorporating chefs incorporating this in restaurants. Um, people can go to restaurants that they trust, and then if they see something like that on the menu in a in a non traditional way, it very well might make it like much more approachable and uh, make that experience. Um, you know, foods foods and experience foods about all of our past experiences all being mixed together, and it might just be the right combination of everything to make it something that they fall in love with. Yes, and I still remember when like kimchi was not available as a vegetarian product like I could not buy vegetarian kimchi um because uh it it was all made with fish sauce and now we have so many options when it comes to kimchi that you know I mean I do eat fish sauce today so obviously I ate all the kimchi I can get my hands on but it's really great to know that kimchi doesn't have to be made with with a fish sauce and, and that you can really mix it up whatever, whatever way you like. It's a very creative process. Now you're, you said you grew up vegetarian. You're not necessarily vegetarian anymore, correct? That's right. So do you have a preference now that uh, you, you do um, swing both ways in in that way? Do you, will you have it with fish sauce or do you prefer it without since that's was kind of your first? So I love, I love, fish and meat and I I love all foods. The only reason I had that dietary restriction growing up was because I had it made I was I was ill from from eating meat when I was younger. Um which probably had something to do with the quality of the meat, but I love fish sauce and I make personal batches of kimchi on my bus with fish sauce, but I generally make vegetarian because I have a lot of people walking through my bus who um, are vegetarian or vegan, and I want to make sure that everyone can partake in the kimchi experience. And mostly everything I make is without fish sauce. However, I definitely have some like small quart jar batches that are like for my own <laughs> for my own consumption. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really... Uh, love fish sauce. And I think that for anyone that has made their own kimchi or has considered making their own kimchi, but they're turned off by the fish sauce thing, maybe you haven't, you haven't acquired that, um, that the amazingness, uh, the knowledge of the amazingness of fish sauce. Um, Try it with fish sauce. Um, It is, it melds right in. It's not a really super fishy flavor. 
um, even, uh, you know, you can actually put quite a bit in and, and there's just so many flavors in kimchi that it's, it's going to just meld right in there. So if, if you have left it out, not for dietary restriction reasons, but because you're afraid of fish sauce, put it in and you may start to uh, love fish sauce and then start using it all the time because it goes great in all kinds of cooking dishes and otherwise. Oh yeah, definitely. Just go to the grocery store and pick up a kimchi that has fish sauce and you'll be, you know, if you don't like it, pass it off to a friend, but it's, I'm pretty sure you're going to like it if you're a kimchi fan and you're just not sure about fish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, and, oh, and do pay attention. Like if you do like start to like it and fish sauce, there are a lot of like not so great fish sauces that you find at the grocery store. Just find one that just has fish and salt. Um, they're, they're, you know, just, just like there are those fake hydrolyzed soy sauces. There are things with other junk in the fish sauces too. Um, but you can find some really good ones and they're like, they're really cheap too. Like you can find really expensive ones, but they're really cheap and you can get ones that, you know, just look at those ingredients and, and just look for that, that, uh, fish, water, and salt. Mm-hmm. Um, those are, that's all you need. Something else that I ran into, uh, was uh, actually on, uh, uh, dribble, uh, dribble spelled with three B's. If, uh, anyone's not familiar with that, it's a place for graphic artists and illustrators, um, to post little snippets of things that they're working on either personally or commercially, um, for other, mainly for other graphic designers and illustrators and artists to then it's kind of like a social network of sorts for, for that. And then, um, for, uh, to have a, portfolio available for other people. But anyway, what I found was this, uh, illustration, this great illustration, uh, for a magazine that it was listing as, um, ferment. Um, and I didn't know what it was, but I really liked the illustration and I clicked through and followed and found this ferment magazine. It's out of the United Kingdom and I don't really know a whole lot more about it. It's, it's, it is, um, a, uh, like a craft beer magazine of some sort. It's, it's, uh, According to the website, it's experiments in the global craft alcohol movement brought to you by beer 52, the UK's largest and fastest growing craft beer club. Other than that, I can't tell you anything about it except that the illustrations. It's beautiful. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's all <laughs> you need to know. Look. Yeah. Go check it out at. Yeah. I'll put the, I'll put the link in the, in the yeah, show notes. I'm not exactly sure. The link will be up, but it's issuu.com slash ferment mag. And yeah, these illustrations are gorgeous. I just found out about this this evening, so it's news to me too. And I'm I'm an illustrator myself, so I'm like, wow, these are gorgeous. They're like exploding with bubbly, like beautiful, fermenty, uh, <laughs> fermenty images. And um, yes. yeah, the was- last the last magazine is called beer with benefits i really like the the main article it has this little quote from the piece and says if you need something to recover you safely and give you a renewed love and zest for life uh in simple terms you need a really good recovery beer (laughs) and in danish this is a reparations beer they say it's reparations bear and um I totally, I totally like feel that, you know, that concept of like having a really good, refreshing, uh, creative beer that gives you this like new outlook on like what can be introduced in the world of, of beer and beverages and food, because you can be so creative with these things. So like with any kind of craft type, uh, food, 
publication, it's really good to remember that it's like bringing a new outlook to life. It's like enriching your life as well. And uh, yeah, I really liked that. And, and we got all of all of that uh, joy and, and um, excitement about this just from having seen a random illustration. So this uh, this Sam Dunn, uh, he's got other illustrations. I'll put a link to his uh, portfolio on uh, Dribble as well. But I think at least these last few magazine editions, it seems that uh, issues he's um, had been doing the cover art on. At least it looks like this a similar artist, and it, he illustrates throughout the magazine. It looks like too. So um, I have to. I'm just going off assumptions here, but. It's it's great. Yeah, cherries, unicorns, hop vines. <laughs> That's all you need. Come on. <laughs> yeah, it's all you need, really, truly, and yeah. So, uh, what kind of uh, things are coming up for you soon? Um, I know you already mentioned uh, some of them, but maybe you can let people remind people about what you're going to be doing. Yeah, I'm. I'm in. I'm in Seattle. This is my last weekend here. And I'm excited to to have a few events this weekend. A potluck at Sandell Park on Saturday, and I'll be at the West Seattle's Farmers Market on Sunday. And then be in Olympia and Vancouver between going to the Oregon Fermentation Festival next Sunday on the 20th, which is going to be super fun. I'm gonna do a big talk about fermentation on wheels, uh, my mission and do some storytelling from my travelings and from my traveling. And then, uh, probably a lot of other great speakers and education and makers offering samples of their stuff. And that'll be in Savi Island, right outside of Portland, Oregon. Uh, yeah. And I think that's, for September, so far, where I'm going to be, besides, you know, Corvallis and Salem and Eugene when I get home, um, which I guess that'll be, like, early October, then there are some really exciting things coming up in October and uh, other parts of the country, right? Um, yeah, I mean, and I'd like to just throw these out there because I know it's October, but in case anyone is um, in any of these areas, these are going to be uh, two good um, festivals to check out as well. Uh, the Boston Fermentation Festival, it's October 4th. Um, and I think that's like a Sunday. It's from 10 to 4. And um, I'll mention more about that once it gets a little bit closer. But if you are in that area or can make it there, you definitely should go because um, a lot of the people that are going to be there have also been on the show. So if you haven't listened to all the episodes of Firm Up, then you can go back and listen to things from uh, Jeremy Oguski, uh, uh, like of Oguski Ceramics. He does awesome ceramics. There's Amanda Pfeiffer from Fickle.com. There's uh, Leda Scheintab with uh, the Cultured Foods for Your Kitchen cookbook. And uh, then Sander Katz will be there. Alex Lewin will be there. Neither of them have been on the show yet. We'll, I'm sure, change that. It's some point. And then, you know, Mary Brackett with the Heal Your Gut Cookbook. She's been on the show too. So, I mean, you have a lot of things you could listen to and then get super excited if you're in that area and go there to that. So definitely want to mention that one. Um, and then there's also the Reedsburg Fermentation Fest, uh, which I did some workshops at last year. It's a great um, convergence of both art. They do large installations throughout the rural countryside in um, Wisconsin, uh, in, in Reedsburg, Wisconsin. And then uh, they have fermentation workshops on both weekends. And it's, so it's a week long thing from October 2nd to 11th. So if you're in either of those areas, definitely keep those in mind. And I'll mention it again once we um, get to like the last weekend in September, but just mark your calendars if you're in the area. Great. Yeah. 
other than that, do you have, um, how should, if people are interested in any of your upcoming things or uh, just fermentation on wheels in, in general, uh, what's the best way to get in contact with you? The best way to get in contact with me is at Tara at fermentationonwheels.com. And if you have any questions, usually they can all be um, referenced in, in on the website, which is just fermentationonwheels.com. But definitely if you have any other more personal questions or questions about booking me for coming out with my boss, then yeah, you can email me directly. And then otherwise, if you have just questions for either of us, um, it will get to both of us if you send it to podcast at firmup.com. Um, otherwise, great way to get uh, and find out more on FirmUp is to go to Facebook or Twitter at FirmUp on uh, either of those locations. Um, and then, you know, other than that, I mean, we don't really have uh, much else to cover today except next time. Firm up. Firm up.